Welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast series, sponsored by Columbia University's Dean of Humanities, the School of Arts and Sciences, and the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Associate Professor of Religion and African American Studies Yosef Soret's new book, Spirit in the Dark, A Religious History of Racial Aesthetics. Later, I'll be joined by Courtney Bender, professor of religion at Columbia University, to discuss Yosef's new book, but first, I'll bring you Yosef's words from the panel. Here, he describes the experiences that led to the writing of the book before reading a few pages. Um, thank you all for coming. I uh, want to uh, thank my panel, discussants, uh, for taking the time to comment on the book and to contribute to the conversation this evening. Also, uh, just more generally, want to thank the community here at uh, Columbia University, both in religion and IRAS especially, but uh, more broadly, the co-sponsors this evening and the various uh, communities that have supported the uh, production that led to this book coming into the world. So um, I uh, appreciate the space that has been provided in support for my work here, and thank you for being here for the celebration. Um, so what I want to do is just very quickly uh, say a couple things about the book, and I think I've timed the epilogue to seven minutes, right? If that, <laughs> um, which seems to work well. So the book, uh, as I tell the story in the beginning of the book, it begins with personal experiences of traveling between churches and spoken word venues in Boston in the late 1990s, uh, and then upon entering into graduate school, um, attempting to gain a little bit of historical understanding for placing the church and the spoken word venue in conversation. And so as an academic, intervention tries to tell the story of religious history and literary history together, particularly in the context of the United States, uh, by focusing on a series of debates from the 1920s to roughly 1970 about black art and culture and placing religion at the center of this debate, which has often been figured as secular, uh, if by default. Uh, And to do so, try to map the messiness of the multiple ways in which uh, a range of religious ideas, practices, and traditions show up, but through narrating a pairing of appeals to church on one hand and spirit on the other. Right? So church and spirit are a sort of persistent pairing that help to narrate the messiness of uh, uh, a story of religious pluralism, perhaps, or um, a genealogy of spirit, as I say in the book. And so what I'll do uh, is simply read uh, about three pages uh, that are the final three pages of the book, and hopefully it captures some of that. And I look forward to the comments and conversation, and especially the wine that's on the other side of that wall, right? Um, absolutely. Um, so, uh, despite the declaration of Elaine Locke and others in the 1920s, the dawn of the New Negro movement did not occasion a definitive breaking point when the rule of black churches was replaced by secular concerns, commitments, and institutional arrangements. Neither emancipation nor reconstruction entirely achieved the black secularism. The push from slavery to freedom and then towards segregation did, however, set in motion a series of struggles that eventually culminated with the Supreme Court ruling in Plessy versus Ferguson. That decision, in turn, created circumstances that met a diverse set of black institutions, churches, businesses, banks, etc had to be established even as their flourishing was undermined by the law of Jim Crow. Indeed, legal segregation simultaneously required and reinforced the central role of an institutional Afro-Protestantism in organizing black life. This remained so from the days of the New Negro until the era of the black arts. 
Afro-Protestant commitments did not exclusively follow the path of independent black churches, which grew exponentially during the final decades of the 19th century. Nor did secular concerns unfold exclusively on black political platforms, the budget sheets of black businesses, or on the pages of African-American literature. African-American culture, political, and religious traditions both flourished and floundered on their own terms, even as they remained entangled across the presumed divisions of sacred and secular that marked the 20th century as modern. There was never any definitive breaking break between the black church and the range of other uh, independent secular black institutions that would emerge. Church presses published secular literature, while secular literature remained driven by religious ambitions. In the 1930s, Benjamin Elijah Mays was one of the first to observe this entanglement and interpreted the relationship between these two spheres of culture. Mays also worried that a significant crack was beginning to form in the armor of the liberal Afro-Protestantism that presided over black social life and of which he played, in which he played a leading role. Roughly 30 years later, Mays' The Negro's God is reflected in his literature was revised and republished amid the radical ethos of the late 1960s. If Mays had been unduly anxious about a declining black church tradition in the 1930s, the aesthetics and politics of black power appeared poised to finally supplant the authority of a fading Christian hegemony in 1968. Ironically, the triumph of secularism in the West was announced at precisely the same moment when laws were being passed to secure equality for black people in the United States. With the death of Jim Crow, perhaps there would actually no longer be a need for the kind of prophetic religion that Mays had called for three decades earlier. And maybe now Negro literature as such would also actually finally disappear, as Richard Wright had prematurely speculated it would a decade earlier. Indeed, a causal connection had frequently been asserted between religious decline and the rise of racial equality. The latter was often assumed to require the former. The same logic was also often applied to literature. Social equality, it was believed, would be the end of racial aesthetics. Some worried that the newfound freedoms occasioned by the demise of legal segregation might signal the end of both black churches and black literature. Quite the contrary would prove to be true, in fact, in both cases. Nobody knew this better or more intuitively than Aretha Franklin. She was in the midst of making a way back to her own religious roots when she recorded Spirit in the Dark in May of 1970. The song drew upon the ritual aesthetics and effective rhythms and cadences of black churches. It was a powerful testament to what Albert Murray in the Omni Americans observed as the affirmative powers of black faith. Franklin appeared to personify one take on the vision of black feminism announced in Todi K. Bambara's anthology, The Black Woman. Both Bambara and Murray's books went to print the same year that Franklin took Spirit in the Dark on the road. Franklin had undergone great change, both musically and personally, during the turbulent decade of the 1960s, with 18 top 10 songs on the soul charts and eight Grammy Awards in the same category. Aretha swiftly became the undisputed queen of soul. Yet by the end of the decade, she moved. She was moved by the revolutionary fervors of recent years. By 1970, Franklin was singing a different tune and the Queen of Soul moniker carried added meaning. Her own evolution was paradigmatic of the age and of the persistence of the black church. By the 1970s, doors that had previously barred black people from direct access to markets and media outlets were being pried open. Afro-Protestantism would flourish anew under the novel circumstances of neoliberalism in forms that were age old even as they were entirely modern. It should have been no surprise that Aretha would soon go back to gospel music or that in doing so, she would record the one album that would outsell all the rest. The album Aretha Franklin recorded in 1972, Amazing Grace, 
grew out of the aesthetic innovations and intellectual developments of the 1960s, which the black arts had articulated in spiritual terms. Aretha Franklin's journey from Spirit in the Dark to the Los Angeles Sanctuary, where she recorded Amazing Grace, was a harbinger of something new on the horizon that was not yet fully understood. Spirit in the Dark, then, was a bridge over troubled waters, from the nightclub back to the church, a passageway into a pulsal era that once again might never quite become the promised land some hailed it to be. In the realm of black literature, an even newer generation of, quote, new black writers would rise to make claims that were in many ways reminiscent of Elaine Locke's spiritual musings in his classic 1926 anthology, The New Negro. Yet at the same time, they shared much in common with the sentiments of James Stewart, who had declared in 1968 in the lead essay to Black Fire, quote, that spirit is black. In laying claim to a new blackness, the late Joe Wood could have been summing up the history of racial aesthetics when, in the introduction to his 1992 anthology on the meaning of Malcolm X for his generation, he wrote, quote, black spirit has never meant one thing or anything concrete, which is its great power and failure. Afro-modernity in the likeness of a black church even still. Saturday nights, Sunday mornings, sacred spaces, secular places, black congregations, white audiences, otherworldly preoccupations, thisworldly powers, converted souls, financial gains, religious salvation, racial transcendence, old-time religion, modern literary visions. All of these modes, moods, and meanings were entangled, along with many more, in the history of racial aesthetics, a genealogy of spirit in the dark. Whether positive or negative, church and spirit will all inseparably encoded, brilliantly deciphered, and masterfully enacted in Aretha Franklin's performance of Afro-Protestant modernity, chasing the spirit in the dark, or as it's been said, you can't keep a good church down. Yeah. I'm here with professor of religion Courtney Bender, who has kindly agreed to talk to me about Yosef's book. And I thought we could start by talking about your comments at the panel, which probed Yosef's use of the word spirit which of course is referenced in the title of his book. And you described how scholars of religion currently engage with this term and how Yosef's work changes that engagement with an understanding of the word spirit. And I was wondering if you could say a bit about Yosef's use of spirit and how his work could change the way the field interacts with this word. Kind of a big question. Yeah, that is a big question. And <laughs> spirit is, as I think I said in the panel, spirit is one of those words um, that has so many definitions and so many uses that um, often scholars of religion have just sort of tried to set it to the side, or they sometimes use it very uncritically, just sort of talking about the spiritual, this or that, without really thinking about what that means. Um, and I also said in the panel that it's now in the sort of political religious climate of the United States now is very much sort of um, connected to this phrase spiritual, not religious. So in some ways, contemporarily, spirit is marking a distinction from religion so that you have religion over here and you have something called spirituality on the other side that's not, and spirituality being usually not institutional, um, very private, um, or on one hand, or maybe um, seemingly in a totally contrasting way, totally universal, right? So there's sort of spirituality is the universal aspect of religion that's sort of culturally marked and Right, so even in saying how it's used in spiritual, not religious, you can see this wide gulf of different ways of understanding it. So, what is the nice thing about the way that 
Yosef is talking about spirit and not spirituality often, is that he's actually tracing the way that um, uh, African-American writers um, in the Harlem Renaissance um, and beyond in the black arts movement um, and African-American intellectuals, um, sociologists, and others um, deploy the term spirit in ways that allow them in a variety of ways with this really interesting story, um, but they're deploying this term to engage the question of uh, what um, African-American um, life is about. Uh, just sort of, you know, is it religious at its core? Um, is it meaning? Is there a spirit that is connected to um, an ex either an experience of race in America or, in fact, that allows African-Americans to sort of connect to or tie into something that is, you know, beyond the American experience, whether that is Africa um, as a real place or as an imaginary place. So what he's doing in incredibly um, fine-grained ways is showing us how spirit has been a term of art that has changed, um, that has allowed people in these movements to make certain kinds of claims for themselves that they otherwise wouldn't be able to make. And so this connects um, then um, in the way that he's specifically looking in the book, in the way that, that this um, becomes a long ongoing argument or question about black church as a sort of religious experience that is connected to forms of Christianity um, and how spirit is sort of dancing around this uh, black church formation and challenging it in lots of different ways. So there's a lot going on with spirit in the material and he's really orchestrating it in some really interesting ways to help us understand the religious aspects of these movements in a really new and exciting way. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, I found that fascinating. And especially when you talked about the idea of spiritual, not religious, that's mm -hmm. definitely something I have said <laughs> to other people. <laughs> and, right. But yeah, this idea of both private and universal and not tied to an institution, I think, is was really interesting to, to think about the way that it's then used to form or to talk about mm -hmm. institutions like mm -hmm. the black church. And I was wondering if you could say maybe a little bit more about the, the writers um, and intellectuals that he talks about um, and how you interacted with their work in his book. Yeah, so actually I'm really not the expert on, so <laughs> I am not an expert on the literatures that Yosef is uh, engaging. So mm -hmm. I really come to the book like with a lot of excitement in realizing that there's a lot more to read and explore within literatures that I sort of brush up against. Ralph Ellison, for example, sure. um, Langston Hughes, um, uh, W.B. Du Bois, right? So, so um, the one will have to read the book. I will, and to listen to Yosef sort of work through the ways that that spirit is um, being engaged in these. I think that what's, in, but I will say that what is interesting is that all all of the figures whom I've just uh, mentioned are, you know, frequently understood as being secular writers, right? Or maybe right. in the common nowadays parlance, they would be understood as spiritual, not religious. Possibly, although <laughs> maybe not, right? So, um, uh, I mean, I don't. And and one of the cool things about the book is that he's. This isn't just about like the spiritual, not religious. This is also talking the ways that people talk about, for example, racial racial spirit, right? So this seems like a very 
secular language, and this is the ways that um, someone like Alain Locke, who he um, writes, who's um, part of the um, new Nick, um, Nick should, you'll have to um, forgive me, but one of the earlier um, uh, uh, figures uh, thinking about the new Negro is like using this language of the race spirit and actually connects this to sort of Hegelian concepts of mm -hmm. spirit, right? So mm -hmm. the genealogies here that we're working with are real, or that Yosef is pointing to are actually rather extensive. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what's really new for religious studies too, I think, for about this book. It's mm -hmm. not just in the sort of nexus of religion or spirituality. It's really a sort of broader range of spirit um, okay. that and also one that is, right, there are also the spirits of Conjur and Voodoo that are in here. There mm -hmm. are the sort of, um, uh, you know, the spirits of black religious traditions that are often seen as being, um, or historically have been seen as demonic, and that are even now seen as being sort of extra-religious in some way, or mm -hmm. anxiety-provoking to, uh, or exotic um, to, and so there's, a, anyway, there's a lot to say, um, Anne, I'm sorry, it's, that's sort of where I would go with that answer to that question. Sure. Yeah, that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. I, um, yeah, I'm interested in, in my own work as a music scholar, mm -hmm. we think about we talk about the spirit of a piece or um, so it gets used sort of uncritically mm -hmm. in my field as well um, and so that's why I was very interested to see this interaction with literature but also with theories of religion and mm -hmm. thinking about that so yeah um, I, I can't say anything <laughs> terribly articulate about it as well but Yosef of course does yes so yes, yes. Um, but yeah maybe we could we could turn to think a little bit about the music that's mm -hmm. inherent in the book and the comment that you made at the panel where you mentioned your experience reading the book as one mixed with listening mm -hmm. um, because Joseph's book, as you said, courses with music. I really like that term. Its title is, of course, a reference to that Aretha Franklin song, mm -hmm. Spirit in the Dark. And I was wondering if you could say more about your experience reading slash yeah. listening to the book. Yeah. 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 So... Um, right, so I think that Yosef gives us an invitation in the title and in the beginning, the very beginning of the book, he starts talking about Aretha Franklin singing Spirit in the Dark. And, you know, anyone who's reading nowadays is reading with a computer nearby or a phone or actually, like, you know, access to the soundtrack. So the first thing I did, actually, was just to go to YouTube <laughs> to see if I could see Aretha um, singing and listen and you know the song is um, great and you know it is so interesting and thinking about it as Yosef does to listen to it in the way that Yosef is sort of bringing us into listening to it but as often is the case you know when you start to listen to something and you go back to the text and then it sort of becomes um, I wouldn't say that Aretha Franklin can ever be sort of ambient music but mm. the sort of you know but that's sort of what happened in a certain way with reading this first time through in the hard hardback version for me is that um you know it's it was really a, a sonic experience to be reading the first to read the introduction and to be to have um, Aretha Franklin on so mm -hmm. as and that just really made me um from the beginning uh well I felt like I had an invitation in the book to um connect or to search out um the the songs the music that people were 
people and the characters in the book are um, engaging either directly or indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, starting, I guess, sort of chrono- chronologically with um, W.E.B. Du Bois and the so- Sorrow Songs, um, the, um, which if you've taught um, the book, um, his work, you know that they're, um, that they're the souls of black folk that begin with lines from spirituals. Um, and the conversation they are around what spirituals are and whether, I mean, it's very complex, whether, you know, what, in fact, the spirituals are to the black arts movement, but before that, to what they are to um, the New Negro movement, what they are, what they say about black aesthetics, right? These are, like, lively conversations that are going on, and it's really cool to be listening to um, that music, or those music, those songs as you're reading about that, right? And also, of course, in the way that we are, have so much access to um, spirituals it, well, on, on a platform like YouTube, right? It's everything from sort of antique recordings to, you know, very highly stylized recordings. And so even that sort of pushes out and um, to thinking about the ways that these conversations and arguments are truly not just about things that people are doing in the 1920s, but they're actually things that people continue to be um, working out aesthetically and performatively into the 20th and 21st century. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this also goes for the blues. Um, in the, I think the, the way that um, I was really interested in the way that Yosef um, um, was thinking about um, uh, Mary Baraka and the blues people. This is comes towards very towards the end of the book, and there's. Um, or even, this isn't as much um, a part of the music of the book, but certainly, well, maybe it is, right? So mm-hmm. um, Baldwin's title, The Fire Next Time, is from a spiritual gospel song, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, that's part of what, um, it's not, it's really not a throwaway line in the book, but of course it's an invitation. That it's, it's not, Joseph talks about that, but it's also an invitation to listen to gospels and listen to Bring, which brings in a you know, religious register, uh, explicit religious register that, um, uh, well, expands expands our interpretation and our understanding of what Yosef is trying to do. So mm-hmm. I guess what I've said in the panel is that it would, it would have been really great if Yosef had given us a soundtrack, if he could like curate a, a playlist, um, yeah. that would be totally awesome. But in the meantime, <laughs> I think there's a lot that, you know, someone even as unknowledgeable as me can do to sort of um, use the book as invitation into into that sonic world. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The sonic world of um, the connection between reading and an internal sonic mm-hmm. world is something that I find really interesting when you're talking about uh, titles that are the opening of spirituals and things that recalls a sonic experience mm-hmm. that you might not otherwise get from just prose description. Mm-hmm. And so I find that I find that really interesting. It's something that I've come across in my own work. Mm-hmm. The the combination between reading and listening, where you see something, you see the first line of a song, and it you hear it in your head. Mm-hmm. And so I found that really, yeah, I, it was something that I really appreciated about this book mm-hmm. as well. And um. Yeah, I guess I don't. I don't know what else I would say about it, it except that I found it really compelling. And I wonder um, if you, if you thought that there might be more room for that in in writing about 
religion because mm-hmm. I feel like there is a lot of connection between mm-hmm. music and sound and religious yeah. spaces. Yeah, so. well, I think that actually uh, one of the reasons why we see this so much in Yosef's book here mm-hmm. is because for the last few years he's been working on what will now be his next project, sure. which is really, um, <laughs> which um, we'll have to ask him more about and wait for it, but um, he's um, publishing on um, um, on music, on pop, on varieties of, and the mm-hmm. ways, I mean, one of the things that we've talked a lot about are the, the ways that uh, the genre of that sort of mark are marked as religious or secular um, in some contexts actually are much more fluid categories and mm-hmm. artists, African-American artists are, um, uh, you know, incredibly adept at sort of, even as, as he says about Aretha here in the Spirit in the Dark, but it, in, in not just crossing or blurring that line or whatever it is, but in fact that making that line so generative for the kinds of provocations of, um, of memory, of thinking about, um, you know, of political issues, of thinking about community, of thinking about, um, uh, not thinking about, but experiencing, right? So music not just being something that one thinks about, but something that's really, you know, um, uh, sort of as both listener and as performer or as creator or as mm-hmm. uh, distributor, right? All of these, all of these um, religious worlds are being um, put together, reassembled, taken apart. Um, so I'm really excited to know, I'm very excited that Yosef is working precisely on this question, or on these questions mm-hmm. of um, you know, religion and music and in the contemporary where the concept of religion seems so fraught and, mm-hmm. not, and experience where religious musical forms can hit us so hard as so secular people and we often don't know why that's happening. <laughs> we don't really have the language to, um, much less the history, to explain why music that we might register as religious or spiritual, which we seem to be not really connected to, mm-hmm. can nonetheless sort of take us down a memory trail or uh, bring us to a sense of connection that we might otherwise feel a little bit anxious or not ready to participating in so mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's what Yosef will be doing but I think that that's the sort of exciting stuff and talking with him about music and religion and the contemporary and popular music in particular that's the thing that he's made me think more about yeah I look forward to reading that work yeah. too because that sounds fascinating <laughs> yeah. yeah this idea of music as contributing to a lived experience that triggers things from other parts of your life that may be vastly divided yeah. yeah oh i can't wait for that book to come out i hope, <laughs> hope he hurries up so i can read it but yeah. um well thank you so much for talking with me today you're welcome and uh yeah you i look forward to reading joseph's next book and also recommend that people read this one spirit yes. in the dark yeah so. and listen to it too yeah absolutely <laughs> thank you very much you're welcome Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Yosef Soret's book, Spirit in the Dark, A Religious History of Racial Aesthetics. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss two books, Irina Raifman's How Russia Learned to Write, Literature in the Imperial Table of Ranks, and Liza Knapp's Anna Karenina and Others, Tolstoy's Labyrinth of Plots. From Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky. 